Well, good morning, Moran Park. My name is Chris Beetham, and one, one of the one of seven elders here at Moran Park. <laughs> Three has definitely been a bit of a skeleton crew, so we're just delighted. Uh, not for just uh, not for just sheer numbers, but for the for the wisdom, the creativity, the energy uh, that they will bring uh, to the table on Monday mornings at six o'clock, or whenever it is that we'll meet from henceforth. So. Well, we continue this morning our series, seven-week series, um, on providing us with a bird's-eye view of the epic story of Scripture, kind of a 30,000-foot overview of, of the Bible that is a story that runs from Genesis 1, creation, to the end of the story at Revelation 21, 22, the new creation, and trying to unpack this and show you that it's not just a bunch of disjointed stories, but actually is one unified story where God has one purpose. That purpose has been unpacked in Genesis 1 for us, and despite sin in the fall, God will accomplish that purpose in Revelation 21 and 22. We've called the, we've called the story uh, the epic story of God's mission from creation to new creation. That's too long. So we just kind of shorthand it and say creation to new creation. We are in Act 3 of the story. There's, we've kind of arbitrarily divided it up into, for those of you who are new and maybe haven't heard where we're at, in the middle of the series, we've kind of arbitrarily divided up the Bible into six chapters or six acts of a story. Starts in creation, Genesis 1, 20, and, uh, Genesis 1 2. Chapter 2 is the fall, uh, Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. Act 3, or chapter 3, is Genesis 12, all the way to the rest of the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, so that's a very, very large stretch of material. It brings us to the New Testament, where we are introduced to the hero of the story, Jesus, and we get to see him in the Gospels, and move on to Act 5, uh, the mission of the church, which is Paul's letters, the book of Acts, and brings us all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation, uh, and especially Revelation 21, 22, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where God accomplishes all that he set out to do in Genesis 1. Well, what did God set out to do in Genesis 1? We know that God created the world, but on day six he created humanity as his image bearers. What does that mean? It means that God created us to image him into all the world, to, that in and through us, God would fill the earth with his glory, that we would order it, that we would fill it with his love and his goodness and his grace and his benevolence, his kindness and his truth and his light. So the goal of creation and our creation is to fill the earth with God's glory. And that does get, in fact, accomplished in Revelation 21 and 22. But of course, the story takes a turn, doesn't it? A very dark turn. We talked about that, that Adam and Eve rebel against their creator, father, king, and plunge the world into darkness and death and sin. And what it turns out to be is that not, we just don't do, it's not just that we do bad things, that we've become 
people who sin sometimes, but that the narrative, the unfolding story reveals that the issue is much more, much more deeper and much more fundamental than that. Yes, we've been separated from God and now we're going to die. Adam and Eve's decision cast death upon the whole world. But it's not just that we've become people who sometimes sin and sometimes, or sometimes do good. It's not a behavioral problem. The fundamental issue is the problem of the heart. And that from an Adam and Eve's genetics, if you will, we have inherited spiritual genetics and we inherit a fallen, evil heart, the seat of the will, the seat of the desires and affections. Our hearts are desire factories. Created to know and love and desire God, we now only desire to build our own kingdoms and desire what we want. We self-destruct. It's like a time bomb sitting inside here. And we can't escape. We want what we want and we can't want what we want. And we're all on self-destruct mode. Paul says it in Romans 7 in the New Testament. He says, who, and, we, and, and by the way, we, we can't rip this heart out of us. We can't like fix ourselves. Right? It's not behavior modification. If I could just get my act together, I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll go back to church. I'll be nice. I'll be good. I'll read my Bible more. It's not behavior modification that's going to solve it. The fundamental problem is that our hearts are sick with the cancer of sin. We're ravaged. And so Paul says in Romans, Romans 7, Who will save me from this body of death? He knows he can't save himself. He can't rip out the heart. He can't give himself a new heart. He can't fix himself. And so how is God going to fix this mess? So we see then as the narrative unfolds that created to fill the earth with God's glory, we only manage to fill the world with violence and all those things that we do, the sin, the idolatry, uh, the rebellion, murder, lust, rape, are all just manifestations of the fallen evil human heart. It's not if we could just fix rape or if we could just fix murder and fix the, the race issue, all, all would be well. No, the, the problem is here. And how is God going to fix that? So God promises, and we saw this in the act when we introduced Act 3 of the story, that God promises someday in the days of Messiah to fix the problem. He's going to give us new hearts. He's going to remove the heart of flesh, the, the ravaged heart of sin and he's going to implant within us heart surgery right a new heart and that heart is going to beat and pulse with love for god and when he gives that heart then humanity becomes fully human and created and healed as image bearers they then are able to accomplish the mission that God gave them to accomplish, which was, in Genesis 1, to fill the earth with his glory. So God's going to solve that problem of the evil heart in the days of Messiah. We saw that. Yet here's the second problem, is that humanity has been sinning and rebelling and committing high treason against the king and idolatry and its sin for centuries and centuries. And the sin has been accumulating and the rebellion has been accumulating. And yeah, he promises to give that new heart. And God is a loving father, but he's also a just judge. 
He's just, right? And so he can't wink at that sin. He can't wink at the treason. He can't wink at the rebellion. He's just. If somebody, if a judge in here, in a circuit court judge was to, uh, here in Grand Rapids or Holland, was to, well, a con, like we, a known convicted murderer come before him and say, not guilty, go free, we would all be up in a rage. Judges can't do that. The just judge has to justly convict and condemn the criminal. And so we have a problem. And the problem is that while God does promise to give the new hearts, the problem is that we're all on the wrong side of the ledger and we're all guilty of sin and rebellion and treason. And the wages of sin is death. And so we all deserve death and we're all on death row. How's God going to fix that problem? Again, we can't understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Hang in there with me if we don't understand the gravity of the bad news of the Old Testament. If you don't know what you've been saved from, you won't appreciate what you've been saved for. And that's what the Old Testament is in part trying to communicate to us. So we pick up the story today, and this is kind of like Act 3, Part B, because we did Act 3, Part A last week, but I simply just could not fit in the Messiah theme of the Old Testament in 25 minutes last week. So we're going to kind of wrap up and go back and finish Act 3 of uh, the Old Testament uh, this morning and introduce the Messiah theme, because it's going to be in and through the Messiah that God's going to give, number one, the new heart, and number two, going to deal, deal with our sin so that we can become fully human, so that we can fill the earth with God's glory and be ravished by his glory forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So the Messiah theme in the Old Testament. And God introduces the Messiah theme in the Old Testament right away, already, immediately after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden in Genesis 3. So Max, if we could have that text, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Messiah theme in the Bible begins immediately after the rebellion. God doesn't waste a single minute to inject promise and hope into a dismal situation. Right? Adam and Eve have just, just realized what they've done. Just introduced sin and death into the world. And God says this. Now God is, he's got Adam in front of him. He's got Eve in front of him after what they've done. He's got the, he's got the serpent, uh, Satan, satanic serpent in front of him. And he says this to the serpent. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here it is. We saw this before. This is, this is just review. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There it begins. God's going to raise up a serpent slayer. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. The satanic serpent who has just defaced 
and set in chaos and death God's plan for the all creation. But note the second half, that as this Messiah comes, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman comes and crushes the head of the serpent, what does the serpent do? Simultaneously bruises his heel. Now, not all snakes are poisonous. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty to say that this one I suggest is probably poisonous. May not be. Could just be a harmless bite to the heel, which is less you're handling a snake is where snakes typically bite. I'm going to suggest it's poisonous, that it's not just a mere harmless bite, but a deadly bite. And as the story unfolds, that is, in fact, what we'll see. That as the Messiah crushes the satanic serpent, serpent slayer, he himself is simultaneously bitten, poisoned, and will die. Just suggestive. Can't prove it. But as the story unfolds, that's what we see, in fact, uh, happens. Now, key to understanding the book of Genesis is to understand that it has this backbone of a family line of descendants that run through it, through which we'll get the Messiah. Starting with Adam and Eve, as Genesis unfolds as a story, we get, as, a, as the story unfolds, we get Adam and then we get Seth, their son, and then we get Noah, the second Adam figure that we saw two weeks ago. And then we go for a little while and we get Abraham, in whom God's going to bless all the nations of the earth in and through Abraham's family, right? We saw that last week. Then we get Abraham, we get Isaac. And Isaac, we get Jacob. And Jacob, we get 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's at the end of uh, the book of Genesis. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, we see that the promise of the Messiah is going to come through Abraham's family, but it's going to come concentrated and focused in the fourth son, Judah. This can be seen in Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Judah, Jacob says, the father, as he's dying on his deathbed, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that is the royal rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So he, here in Genesis 49, that God focuses and concentrates his promise of a Messiah in Judah. The fourth tribe. Okay? Well, let's fast forward. We'll look to this promise to be fulfilled in Judah. He's going to rule over all the peoples of the earth. Well, now what? How does the story continue and unfold? Well, we move on to the books of First and Second Samuel. And in Second Samuel, we see, now we kind of, kind of go, let's see, um, people of God go down to, um, eventually the 12 tribes go down to Egypt they're enslaved for 400 years. God rescues them in the Exodus uh, through Moses. 
He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He forms them as his covenant people. Uh, they become his people who are called to be God's light and salvation to the ends of the earth. And so it's through Israel as his covenant people that the world's going to be saved. Um, but the Judah promise is never uh, finished. And eventually, uh, some, and they come back uh, through the, like I said, they come through the waters, Mount Sinai, through the desert, and finally God brings them into the promised land where they struggle for 300, 300, 400 years. And finally God raises up a shepherd boy named David to be king over them. Another nobody. He's handsome, but he's a shepherd. And he is the last of the, the, last of the sons of, of this tribe, this, this family uh, whose father's name is Jesse. So we see here what God eventually promises to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And it's the Messiah theme. It's picked up again, running through this family lineage over a course of centuries of years. What does God promise to David? Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I, I shall establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we see that God concentrates his mission of David in David and David's family. And if you keep reading, now you go into First and Second Kings, you see that First and Second Kings is a story of David's family and David's lineages, David's lineage, and son after son after son being king. And, and we're all hoping maybe this will be the one uh, that will rule and raise up and deliver uh, the world. Now, there's some good kings like Asa and Hezekiah and good King Josiah. There's some really evil kings of David's lineage. And every time, God's people get their hopes up, maybe this will be the king that will save us. And then they fail. And then another king is raised up. Maybe this will be the king that will save us. And they fail. And then they really start getting bad. And then it gets so bad because you see the people in the book of Kings, as the king goes, so go the people. So if the king is a good king, the people begin to follow God and obey God. If the king is an evil king, they begin, they begin to wander away and fall apart again. And finally get this streak of bad kings and the whole thing, the wheels fall off. And God, by the end of the Old Testament, to make a long story short, at the end of the Old Testament, the wheels have fallen off. God's mission is stalled out. And the Messiah has not yet come. After centuries and centuries of kings, 300 kings in, in the book of First and Second Kings, 300, king, 300 years of kings that fail, ultimately, to bring God's salvation to the world. So the expectation starts to build that there'll be this, God can't not keep his promise. He promised to David that he will have a son that will be on the throne forever. So the expectation begins to build that someday God is going to rule the world with an unbelievable Davidic Messiah who will, in fact, accomplish all God's purposes. We see this in Isaiah 11. The Messiah theme in Isaiah 11. 
Now, this is a messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. It divides nicely into two parts. We're going to read the whole thing. Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, picks up the David theme and says that God's going to fulfill this in an unbelievable way. Let's read this together. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's father. So this is a a way of saying David's lineage. A David, an ultimate David, will rise up. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let's stop there. The text divides nicely into two halves. What do you see here when the Messiah finally comes... What does he do? What do you see here? Go ahead. Make it interactive. What does he he do? He brings justice to the earth, right? Good. What else? He brings salvation. Remember, there's no such thing, by the way, as 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 separately judges and kings are always combined in one person in the ancient Near Eastern world. So you're... Your king was always a Supreme Court just, justice as well. It's not separated like it is in our American democracy. So anyway, this is, this is a king who, who judges justly. What else does he do? What, what, equips him, what equips him to do what he's doing? The Spirit. He's full of it, right? He's full of the Spirit. What else does he do? He delights in the Lord. What does he do to evil and the wicked? Strikes the earth, right? He's bringing justice and righteousness. Going to do away with wickedness and evil forever. Now let's read verses 6 through 9 and see what else he affects. See what else he brings about when he comes. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the otter's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What does the Messiah do? He brings, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he brings justice and righteousness to the earth, rids the world of wickedness, and what does he do? Brings peace, harmony, restoration of creation. Helps people to know the Lord because the earth is full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the, water, as the waters cover the sea, right? Think of that original mandate in Genesis 1. When the Messiah comes, God's, God's purposes for all creation will be accomplished. New creation. He brings 
He brings new creation. He brings the transformation of creation. It's renewal. It's restoration. His coming affects the renewed world. Return to paradise. Eden. Okay. Well, one, one last thing we want to touch on. There's several messianic prophecies that we simply can't look at this morning. There's too many. But one more for our purposes, and then we'll wrap up. <clears throat> I raised the issue at the beginning of my message that we have a sin problem. God's a just judge, as well as a loving father. So while he promises to give us the new heart, how is he going to handle the sin, our rebellion? That needs to be paid for, right? Convicted murderer goes to jail or even the electric chair, perhaps, depending on what state you're in in America, because he's being punished. That sin, that, 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 that sin, that crime needs to be paid for. God's a just judge. So how is God going to fix that problem? You see, God doesn't hate us. He loves us. He wants us to be able to be with him there on that day. When he brings about his new heavens and new earth and he dwells with us forever, he wants to dwell with his people forever, ravish us with his glory. But he can't let us in because we're convicted criminals. And he can let nothing unholy be in his holy presence. You see the problem. Well, we see the Messiah theme picked up and we see that in and through the Messiah in Isaiah 53, God is going to provide the solution to this problem. Right? We have two problems. We have evil hearts and we need heart surgery. And humanity is condemned and convicted criminals and we need our sins to be paid for. So how is God going to fix that problem? Isaiah 53, and that's a long text, but I'm only going to read just the central two verses. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he, that is the suffering servant, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the iniquity of us all. What's this text saying? text is saying that the Messiah is going to come and like a sacrificial animal going to be put to death in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament at the temple you put a sacrificial animal on the altar and you slaughter that thing and its blood runs and the sinner that brought that sacrifice is set free from his sin. His sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven. And the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be that ultimate sacrifice. He's going to go on the altar. His blood's going to be shed. And he's going to bear the brunt of the sin and the crime, the crimes that we committed, the punishment that we deserve for that. He's going to pay. And we're going to swap places. 
He, the righteous one, is going to be condemned. And we, the condemned ones, are going to be set free. Spectacular exchange of Christ's atonement for us. So those are the promises. And yet by the end of the Old Testament, the tension keeps building. The waiting keeps happening. The expectations start, the anticipation just starts reaching a breaking point and you get to Malachi 4 and the people are still a mess and the Messiah hasn't come and the new heart hasn't come and the sin hasn't been paid for and it finishes. <laughs> the end of the Old Testament is a story that's waiting for the climax of the story. It's waiting for a New Testament to which we'll get to next week. <laughs> I've already taken too much, almost too much time. So in conclusion, so you have to come back next week. So in conclusion, some applications. We saw last week that God's a missionary God. That he's relentlessly, tirelessly on mission to rescue his people from their sins and to accomplish his original purposes for creation. To have a human family, his sons and daughters, full, fully healed image bearers who flood the world with his glory and enjoy his Enjoy him forever. And trust me, there is more of God to enjoy than what you are enjoying now. Amen. Ephesians 2.5 says that in the coming ages, he's going to ravish you with his kindness and ever-increasing unveilings of his glory forever. You're going to have to stop and be exhausted and breathe and then go back to God and drink your fill again. He's an inexhaustible fountain of glory in life, and you will never drink the cup dry. That is your hope. That's what you've been made for. He's going to get you there by giving you the gift of the new heart and by paying for your sins. And all this is going to happen in the Messiah. So we see that God's a missionary God. We said that last week. He's also a promise-making God. God is a promise-making God. Is he a promise-keeping God? Oh, you say that. But we haven't seen that yet. So we have to wait until next week to see if he's a promise-keeping God. I have a hint for you, though. Is he a promise-keeping God? So, and then finally, let's just ask this. What are we looking for? What does the Old Testament set us up to look for? Old Testament. What does the Old Testament set us to look for when the Messiah arrives? What, what does he look like? What is he going to be doing? Let's make it interactive. We've, we've read the text. When we're looking for the Messiah, what does the Old Testament set us up to expect? What, is, what does he do? He what? He comes from David's line. He must be from the line of David. Otherwise, God's not a promise. He God's a promise keeper, but he's not a promise maker. He must be from David's line. He must be from Judah. What else do we know? He's going to be the king of the Jews. Yep. 
Is he going to be just the king of the Jews? What did Genesis 49 say? He, to him, the obedience of the peoples will be his. So he'll be the king of the Jews? And through him, because the God of the Jews is the God of the whole world, God's not going to, God of the Jews is not going to stop there. That's right. Grace God, I love it. What else? What else is he going to do? What else is he going to be? What is he going to look like? What's that? He's going to be the serpent slayer. He's going to crush Satan under his feet. He's going to be righteous. Perfect. He's going to be a good king. He's going to make a way. He's going to make a way for God to finally come and dwell with us. He's going to deal with our sin. Somehow. He's going to, we should be surprised if he dies. He shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised if he dies. That's a larger part of Isaiah 53. He doesn't, he's not going to look special. He's going to come and we might overlook him. What's that? He's going to be acquainted with sorrows. That's a fuller picture of Isaiah 53, which we didn't read. That's right. See, Judah, full of the Spirit, right? He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Isaiah 11. When he comes, what does he affect? What does he bring about? Righteousness and justice, right? And the new creation. When the Messiah comes, transformation of creation, new creation kingdom comes. It's going to fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we'll be looking for, finally then, that fatal bruise on the heel from the serpent. As he crushes the serpent and the serpent kills him simultaneously. We'll see how that all plays out. So as we prepare next week to enter the New Testament and continue the epic story, we will be looking for these things to be fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for the Old Testament. Lord, it's the backstory to the New Testament. We know that. We have such a hard time reading it. It's such a long book. So many rules we don't understand. Uh, such a culture that we don't understand that's so far removed for us. Lord, but help us to be people of the book that understand your story and how we can't understand Jesus in the New Testament apart from our Old Testament text. Lord, help us to become people of the book. Read the book. Pick it up. Not so that we can like, try to earn favor with you, but so that we can know you and know our own story. Lord, Old Testament's our backstory, our story. Help us to get into it and know it better. And then, Lord, finally, we just can't wait to get into the New Testament. We can't wait to see your Messiah. We can't wait to see and find out if you're not just a promise-keeping God, but a promise-making God. To see if you're a missionary God who actually is successful in the mission and you accomplish it. Our hearts are just loaded with anticipation and Lord, we can't wait. 
Lord, please be with us. Help us to be people of your story. And help us to wait with eager anticipation for the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray.